So welcome guys. Um, hope everything is going well on your side. So today we're doing uh, another two books. So this is this is probably going to be the second last session online. Uh, we have only one more session online and then we have the final one where we'll meet in person to do revelation. So yeah, with, the, with all that said, uh, if you have your Bibles, just turn to First Peter. We'll do First Peter, and then we're going to do Second Peter. And uh, <clears throat> it seems from First Peter, it seems that Peter also had an amanuensis. So remember, an amanuensis is when you dictate, and then someone else writes and edits for you. So remember, Paul had Timothy, and he also had, I think it was Barnabas. And so you will see this in chapter five, verse twelve. He says. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So Sylvanus is a secretary, secretary assistant here. He's the one who wrote this with Peter. It's also interesting here in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So he's writing from Babylon. Right now, where is Babylon? Is this the literal Babylon that he's writing from? Well, in Revelation, we have Babylon being mentioned as well. And when Revelation speaks of Babylon, which city is being referred to? It's Rome, right? Babylon is Rome. And where, according to church history, was Peter put to death? Where was he martyred? It was in Rome. So when Peter calls Rome Babylon here, he's taking Old Testament pictures. In this case, Babylon is a picture of anti-God, of paganism, of an oppressive kingdom. Whereas Jerusalem is the picture of a holy city, right? There's Jerusalem and then Babylon is the opposite of that. It's the, it's the paragon. It's like the, the ideal of ungodliness. So at this point in time, Rome is a city that rules. So Rome is the Babylon. So if you turn to chapter 1, chapter 1, um, Verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and who is he writing to? It says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So those areas make up modern-day Turkey. So that's where Turkey is today. And you see this is a general epistle. It's not written to one group of people like the Corinthians or to an individual like Timothy. This is to a whole area and all the believers in that region. He calls them exiles. And this is, this is a theme that comes up strong in Peter, that of exiles, pilgrims, uh, sojourner. It is written to believers suffering persecution, believers who are currently experiencing suffering. Since this is written a couple of years before Peter is put to death, it means this is during the reign of Nero. It's a guy called Nero. And Nero was not a good guy. He was a bad. He was so bad that he became the poster child for oppressive and tyrannical rule so normally when you think of a tyrant in our day and age we think uh, hitler you know but before him it was probably nero and nero persecuted christians so badly um, he crucified them and even burned some of them burned them at a stake killing christians became a sport for him a form of entertainment so this is a good book for people who are going through persecution and trials the intention of this book is to encourage people who are suffering Peter begins with elect, those whom God has chosen to save. So verse 2, he says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, 
and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Right. It's a weighty passage. He begins his encouragement by reminding them that they are elect. Sadly, in the church today, election is not a comfort for people. You know, uh, it's supposed to be comforting, but some people even get angry. I've seen Christians nearly swear at me when rebutting them with the truth of this doctrine. But election is intended as a comfort. It's an amazing comfort. Imagine you're being persecuted, you're being thrown into jail, whatever the case may be. It is a wonderful, beautiful encouragement to remember that I belong to God, that I am His. He chose me. He knew me before the foundation of the world. He loves me. And that is the intention. He's trying to remind the believers who are suffering, who are being persecuted, that they are elect, that they belong to God. And that is how we should see the doctrine of election. It's an encouragement to us in the midst of suffering, especially. God is the one who caused us to be born again. God saved us. So Peter goes on to talk about an inheritance. Verse 4, he says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and kept unfading, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. So it's important to remember that. Our life is a vapor. Our life is very short. It's very short, but we have an inheritance awaiting us. If, if you knew uh, you, you had to work 20 hours a day for six months, but at the end of that, you were supposed to get 50 million rand, what would you do? You'd keep reminding yourself, like, okay, this is difficult. I'm getting tired. I'm drained. I can barely sleep. But just a few more months and then just a few more weeks and then just a few more days and then I get the prize. I get the money. I get the inheritance. And that is the idea here. It's important for us to understand uh, to understand that that when we undergo suffering, we should look beyond, right? This is just for a little while. And then there's going to be an inheritance coming that is far greater than 50 million rand, right? It's greater than any monetary value you can think of. So verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And there's a great blessing in that. The Lord Jesus said to Thomas, to doubting Thomas, that blessed are those who believe even though they have not seen, Right? And then concerning salvation, verse 10, he says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours to be that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the, and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they, are, they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they have now been announced to you. Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. So the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about the salvation that was coming. And they wanted to, right? They, they obviously wanted, they wanted it to come during their time, but it was revealed to them that it's not going to come during their time. 
but now it is revealed, right? It's revealed that it has come. It has come in Christ. And so we should be grateful that it has come to us. And in verse 17, he says, And if you call on him as your father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Again, he calls believers exiles. So if you then turn to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of the visitation. So I hope you get the idea. Peter keeps repeating that we are exiles and sojourners, uh, we are pilgrims, that this is not our home. You must remember that. This is not all there is, right? There is an inheritance. We are living for something else, something far greater. This is just a short period of time uh, whilst we're living in this world. And so we have to, we have to also remember that um, uh, given that you and I, we don't really experience a lot of persecution. And if you don't experience a lot of persecution, it's easy for you to settle your roots in. Right. It's it's easy to get comfortable and to no longer live as a as a pilgrim, as an exile. We should always have this sense of not belonging as exiles. Uh, people immigrate from their home countries. Right. South Africans will leave the country and then they'll come back. And if you speak to them and you ask them, why did you come back? They'll tell you that this is home. They belong here. You have a sense of belonging that you can't find anywhere else. And it's the same with other people who come here and then they end up going back to wherever they came from because this is not home. And that is the sense that we should have, right? This is not our home. The closest sense of comfort that we should have is when we come together with God's people because that is a little foretaste of heaven. Otherwise, there's always this nagging sense of, I don't belong here, I don't fit in. And that must be part of a Christian's life. If I feel so comfortable and so happy, here in this life then you might not be saved otherwise you probably compromising in a big way because we are exiles we are pilgrims paul will use the term ambassadors to describe us so we are like ambassadors sent from one country to another as representatives and that is what we are we represent the lord jesus christ but this is not our home right and an ambassador doesn't belong to that place he's just there to represent who's representing um, and so we should only have that sense of belonging with Christ and his people. Okay, so now verse 4, he uses this image. Verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you get an image, a graphic picture of the temple. Instead of the temple with physical stones or bricks, it says Jesus is the cornerstone and we are the living stones. We are the temple of the Lord. And then verse 9, he talks to, to Jews and Gentiles who are spread, who are dispersed around Turkey. And it's an amazing verse because it says, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he's taking language that was applied to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. And he's applying it now to God's people in the New Testament. So right now, is there a holy nation? Best believe there's a holy nation. It is God's people. 
right? It's no longer the nation of Israel. It's, it's, it's the church. We are the holy nation. The people of God are a royal priesthood, right? Those who have received mercy. All of these are beautiful terms that are now given to us. They describe us. And this holy nation, this royal priesthood is made up of Jew and Gentile. Now he's writing to, remember he's writing to believers who are suffering. And one of the areas they are being persecuted under is the government. And Peter says, he doesn't say, look guys, you should form a resistance group and overthrow the government and, th and fight this, this leader, throw this person, get someone else into power. Instead, what does he say? He says in verse 13 of chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So that's quite stunning. Right. It is. Remember, it is Nero who is the emperor at the time, and Nero has gone has gone down in history as the most infamous of all emperors. He was a very sick man, very evil, and yet Peter will say, "Honor him." God has placed him there as emperor, as a ruler, as in, as a as a, as emperor supreme. So honor him, do good, and in this way you could put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right. He's putting you putting to silence the people. But what were the people saying? They're probably saying. Christians are rebels, they are trying to overthrow the government, they are cannibals because uh, they eat some man's body and drink his blood, they are incestuous because they marry only their brothers and sisters, they are lazy because they want one day off uh, of to rest during the week, all these insane accusations. But Peter says if you show true integrity and you honor and you obey, then you will silence them and you will show that they are not trying and you will show that you are not trying to overthrow the government. You are actually the model citizen. And even the Romans did see that. The Romans saw that these guys, they care not only for their poor, but they care for our poor. Right? They don't only care for the poor in the church. They, they care for all the poor. They don't cause us problems. They are the best citizens. And we should take note of that as citizens of a country where we see clearly the wrongs and the corruption happening from the top all the way down. Right. We, like to, we like to complain about the president and this individual and that individual, which is fair. It, it's valid. You know, it's not like we're complaining for no reason. But at the end of the day, we submit to the law of the leaders that God has put in place. As far as we are not in disobedience to God's word, then we submit and we honor the leaders. We can use legitimate means where we should to take action where we can, but we must always honor our leaders. Then he says, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, sorry, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, right? So it's respect and obey your bosses, even when they are unjust. Why? For verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So if you are treated unjustly and you bear it properly without bitterness or holding grudges or becoming nasty or, or any sinful tendency, then it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, for, this, for to this you have been called because Christ has also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For by for you were straying like sheep, but now have but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter brings it back to Christ. You and I have been called to suffer. That suffering could come from your boss, from your lecturer, from the government. But as we submit to it graciously and persevere and endure, as we honor, we are following in the footsteps of Christ, right? Who left us an example. And then he talks about husbands and wives in chapter 3. So just turn to chapter 3. And it's verse 1. He says, Likewise, wives, be sub subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's such an amazing passage. It's an important one because here we learn that we can win someone over without saying a word. Right, so maybe the early church was like a, a rural area today. If you go to a church in the rural area, it is predominantly women in the church. And it seems like that was the case in the early church. So the ladies in the church are saved, but their husbands are not saved. How are they going to win them over? You know, should you go and you nag and keep nagging your husband to come to church? Maybe that's what they did. You know, maybe they put on a sermon on the radio and turn the volume so loud so that the husband can hear it, you know overhearing the gospel um, but Peter's saying that is not how it works he says the way to do it is to become a better wife right become more submissive um, become more caring and show that because of the power of the gospel you now love your husband even more because it's a supernatural love right so show it by your behavior show the reality of Christ changing your life and making you more Christ-like and there's uh, there's this guy, his name is Lee Strobel, right? I think he's, he's a famous, famous atheist. Uh, he was a famous atheist and then he converted to Christianity. So him and his wife were atheists and his wife got saved and he got super mad because it's like, you know, we were in, we were hating God together, you know, we were in this together, but um, she ended up winning, winning him over by her being an amazing wife and mother. Because he couldn't explain what happened to her. It's like all of a sudden, you know, this woman, okay, she's my wife. But now she's like, she's amazing. She's loving me more. I see how she treats me as a husband. I see how she, 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 she uh, raises our children. He couldn't explain what happened to her. And then he ended up going to church, visiting the church with her. And then he got saved, right? So that's, that's an amazing testimony, a uh, famous guy's testimony. And uh, it, it proves what Peter's saying to be. Uh, something that happens. You can win people over by your conduct. Verse three, verse 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. So this passage is not saying that a woman cannot wear braids or jewelry because otherwise she shouldn't wear clothing as well, right? If you're being consistent, then that's what you have to conclude, that she shouldn't wear clothes. But that is not what he's saying. What he's saying is don't let your beauty be external. Paul has said the same thing. Verse 4, but instead let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
For this is how the holy women who had hope, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Right. So it's the sons of Abraham and daughters of Sarah, you know, people of the faith, men and women of the faith. And then he turns to the husbands. He says, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So literally, if you read the, the verse literally in the Greek, it says, husbands live with the feminine one in an understanding way. It's not the normal word used for wives. It means the feminine one. So he's focusing in on the femininity of the wife, you know, to live with her in an understanding way. The King James Version says to live with her according to knowledge, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So the husband must, according to scripture, a husband must get to know his wife. Right? That's what we read in the passage, to understand her, to know her. So he must study his wife to put in the effort to really get to know her and to honor her as the weaker vessel. So what does the weaker vessel mean? Well, definitely one part of it means uh, physically. Generally, men are stronger than women, right? Women are weaker than men. That is why people start to giggle and laugh when they hear of a man who's being beat up by his wife, right? Not to say it's not wrong, but you won't be taken seriously, right? You wouldn't be taken as seriously uh, like you would if it was the other way around. The other side of the weakness is on the emotional side, having to deal with uh, the emotional sensitivity of women. Women are more emotionally sensitive than men, which is actually a gift. It is how I think women are able to be such amazing nurturers and to be so loving. They can pick up on things that are going on. They can read people better. And so uh, because they can do that because they are more sensitive to what is going on. And it's at the same time a weakness in the sense that it makes you more vulnerable to negative emotions, right? Men, men are naturally competitive and aggressive. And so men tend to look down on weakness, right? We do two things when we see weakness. It's either we mock it, make fun of it, or we exploit it. In sports, we exploit the weakness of our opponents. In battle and war, we do the same thing. If we see weakness in other men, we mock it, we make fun of you. But when it comes to the wife, Peter tells men to not um, be, be tempted to do that, right? He tells men instead to honor the weakness, honor the weaker vessel, which implies that there is something honorable about this weakness. As a man, if you go to a woman and you exploit her weakness or mock her weakness, then you're not honoring her, are you? And that is instruction to husbands. Um, honor the weakness. Don't be condescending or mocking of it. Don't hurt physically. Don't hurt emotionally. Rather, honor her. And I, I heard this analogy by Doug Wilson that really paints this picture very well. He said, women are weaker than men in the same way that uh, uh, it's a vase, right? A vase is weaker than a sledgehammer. A sledgehammer is heavy and you can use it to break walls and to crush big rocks. If you drop a sledgehammer, nothing happens. It actually probably breaks the surface that you break it on, that you drop it on. But with a vase, a vase is a container for flowers and it makes things more beautiful. But if you drop the vase, then it breaks. And yet, what is the value of a sledgehammer? It's 
like you can get one for a hundred rand at a at a at a where at a um, where you buy tools and stuff. But what is the value of a vase? You can find some for ten thousand rand, even a hundred thousand rand. I've been in those stores where they sell furniture like that, but and I, and I didn't stay long, right? So you honor the vase, you treat it carefully, you don't throw it about like it's a sledgehammer. You place it carefully where it's protected and won't fall off. So men and women are different. And that is a radical statement to make in the year 2021. But you hear it here first, friends. Uh, we are different. And verse 7 says to the husband that they are heirs with you uh, with of the grace of life. Right? We bear the same image of God. We are equal in value and worth. Uh, we are all heirs to the grace of life. Verse 15, it says, but in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this is a reason for apologetics. So the Greek word there for defense is apologia. So have you heard that word before? Uh, it means to defend something. You can give a, an apologia or a defense for democracy, or a defense for communism, or a defense for socialism, or capitalism. It's a weird word, because it sounds like you're apologizing. Like, I'm sorry, this is, I'm so sorry, this is what I believe. But that's not what it means, right? It means a defense. And, but what is important is um, that verse 15 says that, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the first steps with apologetics, when you go out and you reason with people about the faith and you defend it against all these false teachings, is that you always first regard Christ as holy, that you honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. He is sovereign and he is holy, so our hearts must be right. The next thing he says is to do it with gentleness and respect. Right? Verse 16 says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. If you go around saying, you know, you're a Christian and you go debating people, if you go around saying, yeah, I won that debate, I crushed my opponent, uh, you know those videos of, uh, I've seen especially Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro videos on YouTube, the titles of them are always crazy. It's like, Ben, ben completely obliterates young foolish liberal student, or Shapiro leaves opponent crushed and in tears, or liberal snowflake gets annihilated, exposed idiot. I mean, I always laugh to myself in my head, but let it never be said of us Christians. You know, may it never be a description of our conduct when we give a defense for the hope within us. It's never about winning an argument. Behind a question is a questioner. And that is the goal. It's to win over the questioner. We are trying to reach the person, the never dying soul. And it's not easy, especially because people are enemies of God. They hate God. And so they might be hostile towards you. Right, but remember that was once you as well. So make sure your heart is right with the Lord and that you are able to do apologetics with gentleness and respect. Also, note how the text doesn't say go up to people and tell them the hope that is within you, it says when they ask. So there's this expectation that people will come up to you and ask for the reason for the hope that is within you. You know, it's like, hey, I've seen the way that you are at school, I've seen how you treat your family and your friends. I've noticed how you carry yourself. People are freaking, up, uh, freaking out about what's going wrong in the world, but you've got some sort of hope. What is the reason for the hope that is within you, right? Well, how often do people come up to us and say that? 
Isn't that such a challenge? How nice would it be if people came up to us and said, there's something different about you. What is it? You know, that is how it should be. Um, and then we should, and then we would share the gospel. So Peter's saying, as people come and ask you, not as you go out and defend the faith, right? It's not, it's not wrong to go out and defend the faith. Obviously, it's a good thing. But the point here is, let us have a hope that is visible to the people around us, such that people come and ask us about it. So then uh, Peter goes on and he talks about this, uh, this passage. It's also another enigmatic, tricky passage. Verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patient waited, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So he's talking about the resurrection and Noah being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in, in, in prison. So in prison, which is in hell, there's a lot of views of this passage. One of them that, that I heard that makes sense is that Noah, as Noah was preaching. So back in Genesis, Noah was preaching to the people who would not um, um, repent. Right. So while he was preaching, in the spiritual realm, Christ was there. Just as whenever this, the word is preached, Christ is there and he's there, he's preaching. And that Christ was actually preaching to the spirits that are in prison now, right? So we speak like that even today. Have you noticed how we will say, for example, you know, there's the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, she was born 1920-whatever. Um, was she the queen when she was born? No, I think she was made queen like, I don't know, 20s, 30s. But we will speak of Queen Elizabeth was born that year, right? Or when we will say when Queen Elizabeth was 14, she did this. But she wasn't a queen when she was 14, right? I hope you see what I mean with this. So the spirits that are in prison, they weren't in, they weren't in prison. They weren't in hell then, but that is where they are now, right? So through the preaching of Noah, Christ delivered his message he proclaimed it to the spirits that are that are now in prison. I hope that makes sense. And what is, what is it about these spirits? Uh, why are they now in prison? Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he links the flood in Genesis to baptism. Uh, so you know how people sprinkle for baptism? It, it, it's just made to look ridiculous when you consider that it's a flood that is being compared to baptism. You know, it's not like it's rain or drizzle. Um, a flood is like full immersion. And what did the flood do? Remember what the flood did? It destroyed everyone who was evil. But through the ark, it brought salvation to eight people, to Noah and his family. So it corresponds to baptism. That's what Peter tells us. The flooding of the water, the drowning, uh, the old man is put to death and then raised in newness of life. Right? And he says, not the washing of the body, uh, because baptism is not about washing the external dirt. You're not, you're not taking a bath. Instead, it is the answer or the appeal of a good conscience. It is a person who wants to be right with God saying, forgive me for my sins. I want to follow you, right? Baptism 
is that step of obedience. It is that external sign that represents the internal reality. It is a dying of the old world, the old nature, and the resurrection of new life, which is what happened with Noah. With Noah, it was a death to the old humanity, and then a new race came forth from Noah. Right? And then uh, the last chapter, chapter 5, speaking of elders, verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So being a pastor, being an elder, is not a career choice, right? While the Bible never says it is wrong to earn a salary as a pastor, in fact, it's it's a good thing, it does show that it is a calling. Primarily, it is a calling, right? It's not a career choice. It's not like, ah, you know, I can't find a job, so let me go be a pastor. No, Um, it's a calling and pastors are to shepherd eagerly, not for shameful gain. Verse 3 says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, which is Christ, when he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So those of you uh, who might be called to being a pastor, to being an elder, you desire a noble thing, right? And you will be rewarded for it. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the, the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So now he moves on to humility. But now here he focuses on the younger people, which is uh, most of us, right? Maybe because when you're younger, we are more prone to being rebellious. So he talks about humility. And one of the ways that we can attain humility, we can become uh, more humble, is verse 7, by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right? Very interesting. Do you want to know how to remain humble? Cast all your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So there's a sense of solidarity. There's a brotherhood. The people of Christ are spread throughout the world. Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, verse 13, Uh, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So this Mark in verse 13, this is the Mark who gives us the gospel of Mark. Peter would have known Mark from the earliest days of the church because the church in Acts, in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 12, they actually would meet in Mark's mother's house, right? So this verse also tells us, shows us that there's a close relationship between Peter and Mark. He refers to him as my son. Um, And so a popular view is that Mark wrote his gospel at Peter's request, at Peter's direction. Okay, so that is 1 Peter. That's an overview, a summary of 1 Peter. Are there any questions so far? Any thoughts? Or should we move on?
Christ. Not the fact that they are suffering or trying to but they're still calling them to think about their conduct in the light of unbelievers, that they've come to them and still asking for the reason for the hope that was within them. Yeah, even in times of persecution, they still want to know the same holiness and still want to be thinking about um, reaching out. Mm-hmm. We believe, not only through our words, but still the way we conduct ourselves as Christians. Uh, that's consistent with our profession. Yeah, yeah, no, like that's 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 true. Um, it calls you to, I guess, like a higher standard, you know, no matter what's going on. And I think, like Peter says, you know, it's it's Christ who set the example for us. Um, Christ in His suffering, you know, He He experienced greater suffering than anyone else, and yet His conduct was perfect. Hence, why. Um, um, you are sinless, right? And so that's the great example that we have. And it's like, regardless of what is going on, it, it's all, it all matters to God, you know, how we conduct ourselves, how we treat other people, how we walk as believers. We, we're, just follow, we're just following in the footsteps of Christ. So, yeah, you, you're right. It's, it's quite profound. Okay. Any other comments? If not, if there are... Just just park them for uh, the end of the session and we'll just go through them. And you can just put them on the chat in the meantime so that you, you don't forget. Please don't forget your questions. Okay, turn to Second Peter. I think it's shorter. It's only three chapters. So Second Peter, it says in verse 1, Simon Peter, uh, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I've heard that there's a lot of debate about who wrote this book, surprisingly. Um, I don't know the discussions or what they're about or what's the dispute. Um, but yeah, apparently there's a lot going on there as to Peter, whether Peter actually did write this. Um, but in the interest of time, we will just take it, we'll go through it and take it as written by Peter, right? I think historically the church has taken it as being written by Peter anyways. So if you if you read through this book, you'll notice that it's quite a sober letter. Um, Peter talks about being ready to die. So verse 13 of chapter 1, he will say, I think it right as long as I, as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Right. So he knows he's going to die. And the style or the genre of writing here is called a farewell discourse, right? It's a farewell. So it's like final instructions. If you knew you were going to die and decided to send final instructions to your church, to your family, to your closest friend or whoever, you tell them what is important, you know, you tell them what to be careful of. And this is what you find in this epistle. He's telling the church how to persevere. He's warning about false teachers and he talks about the day of the Lord. So this is written close to his death. And from church history, like I said earlier, we know that he was put to death in Rome. He was crucified upside down, apparently, uh, during the reign of Nero. So he may be in prison at this time, just like, just like Paul. And again, if these are Peter's final words, then we need to pay attention to what he's saying because he will be focusing in on important things. So this is a general epistle. It's written to all the churches, not a specific one. But there are some pointers that indicate that it might not be that general, that there might be some individuals 
or individual things that he's addressing, but we'll see this in chapter 3. So if you have uh, your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, uh, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called, who called us to His own glory and excellence. So that verse tells us that we have all that we need. Right? You and I have all that we need. Oftentimes we feel like we don't, we feel discouraged, but we have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. Verse 4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of, this, of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So that is something to meditate on. All right, just think of those truths. The truth is that we are partakers of the divine nature. Right? That is an amazing reality. We're also told that we have the mind of Christ. And because of this, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For these, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they are keeping you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So knowledge, so, so take note of all of that language. It's sanctification talk, right? Um, these qualities are yours are and are increasing. They're getting more. They are bearing fruit. And then he says, for, verse nine: For whoever lacks these qualities. He is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So it's very encouraging. Peter is saying, I don't want you guys to fall. I don't want you, to, you guys to be lost. And here is how, right? This is actually a very practical uh, passage, right? It's, 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 it's telling you how to... Uh, uh, grow or or persevere in sanctification, right? In a sense, it's showing them how to persevere to the end. This is how you pursue sanctification. First of all, be pursuing sanctification, right? Let it be your desire. And remember, with sanctification, you never plateau. You are never just you never just neutral and on a flat line. You are either growing or you are regressing. Right. It's like if you have a graph, it's either the, the line is going up or it's going down. So see constantly to be growing. If you are going forward, then you are progressing. Then you won't fall. Remember, remember when we talked about uh, those who fall away, when we looked at Hebrews, how when you fall away, it's never sudden. Right. You're not walking with the Lord and it's great and it's sunshine. Uh, and then the next day you just fall. Right. It's normally a long period of regression. It may look to us, you know, who are looking at your life that, this person suddenly woke up and chose to stop following Christ. But in reality, it began a long time ago. It's true for others uh, that it's happened to, and it can be true for us. So be watching your own heart, be examining yourself. So here, it's a wonderful uh, promise that if you, if you per persevere in sanctification, then you will be okay. Now, one of the major themes in this book is a theme of remembrance, remembering. If you read through it, you will see the words remind and remember and recall. Those are re repeated constantly in the letter. Look at verse 12. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 13, he says, I think it right as long as, as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And 
uh, is it verse 15 he says and i will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to any time to recall these things and if you go back a little to verse 9 verse 9 he says whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten so remembrance forgetfulness are important themes in this letter these truths while you might think to yourself hey i haven't forgotten this i haven't forgotten that i haven't forgotten what sanctification is i haven't forgotten christ i haven't forgotten the day of the lord yeah if, if you've been a christian for a period of time then you know about these things right it's not like you forgot about the actual doctrines the remembrance here is not a knowledge or an information kind of remembering remembrance in hebrew is more like an experiential remembrance and that is what he's talking about so you know we take communion and with communion jesus says do this in remembrance of me it's not like you forgot who jesus is it's not like who am i trying to remember right you don't you don't forget who christ is i hope not because there's a sense in which we could we could explain uh, jesus and what he accomplished on the cross right if the gospel was an exam uh, if it was an exam question, I'm pretty sure you would all get 100%. But we have forgotten it experientially. We don't live out the fact, right? We don't live out the truth that Christ has redeemed us and united us to himself. We give in to sin as if we have forgotten that it no longer has power over us. We live as if we have forgotten that we have a high and a great hope, right? So the Lord knows our weakness. He knows that we are forgetful. In that sense and so he gives us ordinances and we are to do it often we take communion often uh, he went we go to church often weekly he wants us to do it on a regular basis it is so that we remember and Peter here he says you forget these things so I'll keep reminding you and while I'm here I will remind you and even after I'm gone I'm going to make sure that you're reminded right we go to church every Sunday and that is a means of grace even though you might hear new things about the Bible we learn new things about scripture all the time because God's word is incredibly rich, right? It's, it's God's word. It's diverse. And there's so many stories. There's so many accounts. There's so many verses. So you might hear new content, new passages, new this every, every time you come to scripture. But the basic truths will pretty much look the same, right? And still, we need to be constantly reminded of the basic truths all the time. We come together on Sundays to meet with Christ and to be changed, to be reminded intellectually and to be reminded experientially to be reminded that christ loves us that he died for us and this is how he wants us to live it's not that a sermon will teach you that anger is bad right it doesn't teach you that lust is bad it doesn't teach you that fornication is bad it's because you you already know that you already know that you shouldn't lie that you shouldn't lust that you shouldn't steal but that sermon might remind you that this sin is bad experientially right you know what i mean you know these things are wrong that they are bad, but at the same time you forget. It's why we fall into the same sins. So we need to be reminded, and God does remind us in his grace. That is why we must not forsake all the means of grace that God has given us. Uh, meeting with the church regularly, the sacraments, uh, communion, baptism, sitting under the preaching of his word, Bible study, prayer, etc. We need to constantly remember. Verse 16, he says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. So what account is Peter referring to here? 
when he says he saw the majesty of Christ from the mountain, he's talking about the transfiguration, right? He says, we are not telling you stories. We did not create this Jesus guy. We did not fabricate him. This is not a myth. We were eyewitnesses. We saw his glory. We saw it, we saw it on the Mount of, uh, Mount of Transfiguration. And in verse 19, he says, and we have the prophetic and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you, you will do well to pay attention. So he says we have something more fully confirmed. Some other translations say uh, we have something more sure, right? More sure than what? More sure than eyewitness account. More sure than the experience of Peter. So here, hear what Peter is saying, right? And this is very important, right? Please turn up the volume on your device. We have something more sure, which is the prophetic word. So Peter says, I had this experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw his glory with my own eyes. But I have something more sure than that. I have something more certain than what I experienced with my own eyes. I have the word of God, the prophetic word. I have the Bible. And it's, a, it's an important, it's a very important message for us today. I mean, it's important for all ages, but more so for us today because we live in a culture of experiences, right? So much emphasis is placed on our experience. Isn't that true? We speak of what is your truth, right? Well, this is my truth. This is my experience of God. How do you experience God? Actually, there is only the truth, right? You and I, we don't own the truth. We don't, we can't rent the truth. It's, we don't take possession of it. In fact, the truth is a person. Jesus is the truth. What we do is we take these experiences and we make them God, which truth be told is just self-worship. It's idolatry, right? We put our experiences above any and everything. Now, this experience of Peter at the transfiguration is also in the word of God. So it's, it's a virtuous circle. But what Peter is saying is that the word of God is ultimate, right? He says, don't trust what what I have seen and what I've experienced. Trust God's word. And, th and this is something that is more sure. God's word is more sure than whatever you may experience, right? That is our foundation. This is the lens through which we understand and we live out reality. When we do have experiences, when we do have emotions and feelings, we must test them. We must test them by the word of God. Test the spirits. Our emotions are not reality. In fact, our emotions betray us. Emotions are not your friend. They tend to actually deceive us about the reality of whatever is going on. And so we must submit even our feelings and our experiences to God in his word. Right? Feelings are very deceitful. You can go to a concert, whatever your favorite genre of music is, whatever, whoever your favorite artist is, and you can go and listen and you can get the same feeling there that you do singing hymns in church. Right? You can get the same goosebumps and lovely emotions singing love songs at the concert that you do when you recite the Psalms, right? So the point is that that is not what worship is. It's not, it's not, worship is not some amazing experience. It might be, and praise God for that, but what is ultimate is God's word. So if someone says they have an amazing experience, um, I was convicted of my sin, I was shown the grace and the mercy of God, I went and received it, I was challenged to live a holy life, then that is a great thing because it aligns with scripture. But if you say worship was great, the band was amazing, the worship team was incredible, it was such a vibe, 
um, I have some tips on how to make more money. I have, I can, uh, I know how to get my business to flourish in 2021 and how to fix my marriage in, in three steps. Well then, how does that point to Christ? You know, where does that align with scripture? You can get, you can get the same, those, you can get those same emotions and feelings from a TED talk or your Spotify playlist. So our emotions, our emotions are not the standard is what I'm trying to point out. Feelings should never be the judge of our situations. We know this, right? We've been burned many times by our feelings. Uh, I forget which theologian said this, but he said that feelings are a wonderful servant, but they are tyrants if you make them your ruler, right? So don't let them rule you. Um, so then uh, also importantly, Peter says, verse 21, for no prophecy has ever was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, quickly. Now, uh, here's the warning in chapter 2. He says, But false teachers, false prophets, sorry, also arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So it's interesting, you know, like uh, he says, there were false prophets in the old covenant, and so in the new covenant, there will be false teachers, right? It's a given. Uh, and note that it doesn't say that there will be false prophets in the new, right? So it's just an interesting thing there. What will these te false teachers do? Um, says verse one, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Verse two, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So we're not going to go through this. We'll talk about it when we look at Jude um, in our next session because the same principles will apply there concerning false teachers. But as you go through it, there are certain elements of false teachers um, that represent them. Firstly, they use their words to deceive. Secondly, they are greedy. And thirdly, they are sexually immoral. So these are, these are the three themes that will come up over and over again. And you will see it in the Old Testament as well. You know, Peter will use the Old Testament examples to show these New Testament false teachers. And if you look at the church today, that is what you see, right? Not everyone who does these three things is a false teacher, but every false teacher is characterized by these three things. Okay, these three, these things should disqualify a person from being a pastor, from being an elder. And you will find that a godly elder who's maybe fallen into these sins, uh, if they are truly saved, then they will actually leave the ministry. They will step down because they know it's not the right thing to do. But with false teachers, they won't leave. False teachers never leave. Have you seen? They hold on to the power in the church and they abuse the flock with it. Okay, we have two minutes. Lastly, chapter three says, this is, verse one says, this is now the, the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Again, it is a reminder. Then verse two, that a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the Holy Spirit, and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your the, of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own desires, sinful desires. They will say, "Where is the promise of His coming?" For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God and, by, and that by means of these the world in, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are now are stored up for fire, being kept up until uh, until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter talks about mockers and scoffers, you know, and what will they say? They will scoff and saying, where is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Where is he? Nothing has changed since the beginning. People still mock and they say, uh, oh, you Christians have been saying the same thing over and over again. Where is your Jesus Christ? When will he come back? And why? Why is it like this? Why is it that Christ will, uh, why is why is the Christ that we say will return, not yet returned? Well, because God, firstly, God is outside of time. So look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand and a thousand years as one day, right? God is outside of time. Secondly, God is not willing that any should perish. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise at some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And specifically, the elect, right? That's who that, that passage is addressing. Remember, who is, he, who is he writing to? He's, he's writing to God's elect people. God is patient towards you, elect person, not wishing that any of the elect should perish, but that all should reach repentance because only the elect reach repentance. So the only reason why the Lord Jesus Christ has not yet come is because there are still people who need to be saved. If you look at your own life, imagine the Lord coming the day, coming the day before you were saved, right? You would be eternally damned, but God was patient. And so it is his grace and mercy that he has not returned yet. People say that Jesus has not yet come back and that is a sign that he doesn't exist. And that is completely off. It's, he's actually being merciful and gracious. He's being patient. And sadly, the unbeliever is abusing his, his patience. He's even mocking God, right? But when the Lord does return, verse 10, but the day of the, Lord, the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so because all of these things are going to happen, he says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be, uh, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So don't live, don't live um, because of this age. Don't, don't live for this age. Don't live for this life. Live for the age to come. Right? Conduct is important because everything in this life is going to be buried. It will be burned up and uh, dissolved. Uh, and then lastly, he says, verse 14, um, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in all these matters. Uh, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which, are, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with other scriptures. So isn't that encouraging? Do you sometimes struggle with uh, understanding Paul? So did Peter, right? And he was an apostle. And it's very interesting that Peter says that people will twist Paul's words to their own destruction. And have you noticed how often Paul is attacked? Some, some groups even reject Paul's writings. Today, they say that he was a sexist or misogynist because Paul forbids women preaching and elders. People say Paul was a homophobe because he calls him homosexuality a sin. They saw all kinds of things. And then there's a wonderful ending, uh, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Okay. Amen. That is our aim. That is our goal to grow in the grace and knowledge of our, our Savior Jesus Christ.
are there any questions sorry we are over time if you do feel the need to drop off please don't hesitate uh if you guys have any other questions or comments um, the floor is yours Okay, it seems like a uh, rejection of my invite, which is cool, it's fine. Um, let me pray for us, and then uh, let me just close for us in prayer. Okay. Lord, thank you for um, your word, and uh, such such an amount of time is never enough to do it justice, Lord. Um, just marvel at your grace and your mercy, and just marvel at Christ, and how he was able to live the perfect life, how he was able to... Um, um, die and take upon himself the sin uh, of the elect, his chosen people, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, um, all to your glory, Lord. And, uh, and so to that end, may we look to him as our example, following his footsteps in conduct in all the aspects of our lives, so that whenever trials and difficulties and suffering are upon us, to any degree, Lord, we might still honor you. We might still honor you by honoring our leaders in charge, by um, treating our our neighbor with love, uh, loving our husbands, um, loving our wives, uh, submitting to our hus husbands, and all that we have seen in these two epistles, Lord. We ask that you uh, help us to remember experientially, Lord, who you are, and uh, to be constantly be reminded, so that we may walk in this newness of life that Christ has brought for us. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.